0: Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Hello everyone. You are listening to the MC Lars podcast. This is episode 119 with Brandon Patton, aka Black Lotus from Frontalot's band, a man who has designed games, put out solar records, and he's a good homie, a father, a uh, Seattle resident. This episode is brought to you by the Patreon Larsians. As always, shout out to everyone who supported me on Patreon since the beginning. and Shout out to the new ones who just signed up. Trish, Michael, Ty, Ben, and Carlos. And shout out to some of the old ones. Chewy, Alex, Stanley, and Jason. Y'all are keeping me going. I'm doing my Star Wars series. I just dropped my Return of the Jedi song. And I got my two Mandalorian tracks dropping soon. So patreon.com slash mclars. I have a special announcement. So... I started this podcast in the fall of 2018. That's almost three years ago, and um, I am working on my new record, which you can pre-order on Kickstarter. The link is on my Twitter profile. The working title was "Fear of a Blockchain Planet," but I think I'm going to just call it "Blockchain Planet" unless I can get approval from Chuck D. Um, it's a long story, but I, you know, it's a serious topic, and their record "Fear of a Black Planet" is imp- an important hip hop album, and I don't want to make light of something historical. So I talked to some people and I thought about it, and I don't think I'm going to call the record that without his permission. And um, if I can't get in touch with Chuck D, I'm just going to call the record Blockchain Planet. But the design, the art, the songs are all still going to be the same. So that's an update on that. There's about two more weeks left in the pre-order. I've been doing the Four-Eyed Horseman streams. We're doing our next one May 29th. Uh, It starts around... 5 p.m. Eastern, you can pre order tickets. We have like really cool baseball cards, but I'm taking a hiatus from the podcast. Now, I know we went from weekly to monthly. And now I'm going to take a little break as I finish the record. I'm doing my master's in uh, instructional science and technology through Cal State University, Monterey Bay right now. And that's taken a lot of time. I'm going to be on the road this fall, but this podcast will resume. And I especially love when I can sit down with people like face to face. COVID has made it really hard because we're Zooming all day and all my interviews this past year have been through Zoom. And um, I still love doing the podcast, but this is just a sh- heads up that we are going to take a break for a little bit after this episode. We have a new Hatchet Chat dropping next week about the Wraith. And then in about a month, we're doing Hell's Pit. And then Hatchet Chat is going to go on to hiatus as well until ICP drops the next Joker's card in the second deck. So that's a heads up. I'm still doing the Patreon stuff and I'll be dropping the singles, you know, in the future, more stuff on Spotify, more content. And we'll keep it going, but this is a heads up. You won't see any new episodes for a little bit, but hit me up, Lars at mclars.com, if you have recommendations on who I should have on in future episodes, because I love this. I love doing this podcast. I'm just trying to make sure I can keep it fresh and dope. And the way I do that is by sitting down face to face with people, because that makes the best chemistry, the best interaction. You feel me. Nevertheless, this interview with Brandon Patton is awesome. We talk about like the heyday of the first few years of Frontalot's career, the origins of Nerdcore, a po- popular topic on the podcast. So here we go. This is my interview with Brandon Patton. <laughs> Here with Black Lotus, aka Brandon Patton, and this is man is a game designer, an accomplished solo musician, a road dog, a father. Welcome to the podcast, Brandon.
1: So nice to be here. I can't believe you've done. You've already done more than a hundred of these things. It's incredible.
0: Uh, thanks, man. You know who our fir- my first guest was? I bet you can guess. Probably MC Frontalot. Yep. Hey. <laughs> Um, he was guest 1. And yeah, yeah I I was doing it every week, but now it's every month because, you know, once you have a kid, you have less uh constant free time.
1: <laughs> well, I I've, I've I've emerged from uh the pandemic and a second child, which which um turns out two children is even harder than one child. Um I hadn't gotten to play board games in like a year or something. And um <clears throat> you know, in my in my pre-parenting identity, I, I, I played a lot of board games. I was like a board game geek, I, and 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 Magic the Gathering stuff. I had groups of friends I played with, so it felt weird. I mean, like both music and gaming were 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 like distant memories. So anyway, we 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 finally figured out a way to get like a quick two hours, um, and 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 played a, a, a board game that was popular a few years ago called Wingspan, and. Um, and then just that one gaming session, then I, then I was like, oh, yeah, I have all these ideas. And it, like, it just rekindled my little game design thing. So right now, I'm working on uh, a card game again. Um, and, and I really should be working on it less because I have a lot of other responsibilities. I should be um, ranking higher. But I, I just can't. I get so obsessive. and I just, I'm just like twiddling away on my little spreadsheets and trying to decide which mushrooms to include and stuff. It's a game about mushrooms. The, the cool thing I got to do first was there, I teamed up with a doctor who was making a game about um, infectious bacteria,
2: hmm.
1: um, which is funny because it, it was almost viruses. So we almost w- would have been like, hey, we, we're the people who had the card game about viruses world who's learning about <laughs> viruses. But uh, So it was about infectious bacteria, and it was this um, super challenging assignment To make a game but he was really he really didn't want to lose any of the real world truth of how the medicines are actually used and yeah and that was like a insane constraint because because there's there's just like this big graph of you know you can use this but not this you can use this but not this and it's just it's just crazy um and so that was my first game was a game about bacteria called Defenders of Soma. Um, and it, it it actually slowly caught on until the point where we're we're currently sold out and working on a reprint. So there's this little community of like medical nerds and microbiology nerds who love this little card game. I mean, it wasn't a huge print run, but um, but they love this card game. And oh, and I forgot to mention the whole thing is in in fantasy, high fantasy style. So so even though you have You know, Lyme disease on, which is, you know, Borrelia burgdorferi is what they call it scientifically. It's depicted as, as a monster.
0: Oh wow! Wait. So Lyme disease is a bacterial infection. It
1: is. Well, it's a it's a bacterial it's a bacteria that gets inside a tick. Yeah. So that was my first game, and then 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 we started a he's kind of a, a relationship together, a startup together, and so I've started trying to make little educational games for medical students. So so there's been a couple others since then, but they're really only relevant if you're in med school. Um, and then I made a political satire card game, uh, which was the The worst timing of any project I've ever been involved in. I mean, it, it's it was almost like it wasn't this bad. But do you remember it, the coup had an album uh, with, with like the World Trade Center on fire, right? And, right. And it was slated for release like the day out, like September twelfth, two thousand one, or something like that. And yeah, uh, yeah, that that was the worst timing ever. So I I didn't I didn't d- unthrown them, but it was a it was a game. Uh, I met these people from Europe who were making fun of, um, parliamentary politicians in Portugal and they were excited to, you know, uh, apply their game to the American market. And I, I helped them like learn about American politics and how to put it all there. And then like the minute we started promoting it, the whole turn, the whole tone of the country just got insane as Trump was, was running for his first, for the first election in t- 2016. And, and, um, we looked like a bunch of jerks because we were making jokes about stuff that suddenly got really heavy and scary and dark and and so it was sort of like all right well i mean we were working on this in 2014 but now that now that we're here to release it everybody is uh justifiably super frustrated and upset about everything and nobody has a sense of humor so that that game didn't do very well
0: (laughs) (laughs) well yeah that's like with songwriting you know i used to always do I used to love to do like political songs and topical songs but that became people were inundated and bored of that right no one wanted to hear a song about why we didn't trust the president cuz that's all the news was right, and so right. it's everything really kind of shifted
1: yeah and it's really hard to do um just creatively, it, it takes a lot of work and effort to, to make something good. And, and if it's, it's, if it's contemporary, then it's only relevant for a week or two. So, right. So it's, it's almost like a bad business model to be like, I spent two months perfecting this thing that I can share for a week until people are sick and tired of it. Like, it's just, you know, you kind of want to do something a little more
0: timeless, but that's interesting. <laughs> that's, um that's why weird Al talks about he does why he doesn't do political stuff because he's, he spans so many decades, right? right that it would not re, it would not work.
1: Yeah, now, I mean, is, is Weird Al the guy who made fun of the Panic of 1987? No, that's
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that. Well, this brings us to an interesting point because talking about top topicality, if that's even a word, talking about th- how things come and go and um, are popular and then they fade away. Let's talk about your relationship with Damien. Yeah. And it's amazing that we're all still doing this, but I do feel like two thousand six to two thousand nine was like this this popularity that you were a big part of and continued to be in being in the movie, being a big part of the documentary. Like, how did you meet Frontalot and what was it like being like in a band where you 're your own solo artist, but kind of your identity was wrapped up in someone else 's project, even though you 're close friends that 's a big question i guess
1: yeah yeah and and you know it, it, even looking back on my life you know i, I, I i'm just I wonder about so many things but basically the the short version of the story is that um, uh, we met in college, and I was um I was devoted to trying to be a musician before Damien even really kind of started taking it seriously. Damien was going to be a, 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 a web designer, a graphic designer when he graduated and, and um, went back to the Bay area for a while. And he was, he was doing it. Um, he was, he was doing the early song fight stuff and the early um, raps that he recorded kind of for fun, you know, on the side. Um, and, uh, years uh, several years later um he had partly because of his uh, how good he was at at, at internet in, in those days where it was only people who were good at internet were really were really at the front line of 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 connecting and and everybody else was like well, you know i got this AOL CD in the mail i don't know what to do with it you know <laughs> uh, and and so he was he was connecting with people were sort of super users or or just good with technology and um and so he he quickly uh gained a lot of friends and 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 a lot of support on the internet and i was sort of floundering around uh i tried rock music i tried singer-songwriter stuff and i i didn't really have any idea how to how to how to build a fan base Um, I still don't. And, and, uh, and he eventually just sort of had a little bit of momentum. And I kind of, I kind of was like, man, you know, it's just, it's just more fun. It's, it's more fun being a part of something that has a little bit of momentum, even if it's not my own thing, than it is doing my own thing, which feels really good during the creative part. But then when you, when you go out to like share it with people, and you're like in a bar with four people, and you're just like, "What is? What? Is, what am I doing with my life?" Which I, I'm sure you remember. And and the right. funny thing is, even you in front a lot. It still occasionally have these weird shows where nobody shows up. I assume because that still happens sometimes. But right. but um, but in the beginning, it's just all that, and it's it's just very, it's just it's just very strange to just be out there, you know, plugging away. So I got I got excited about. Being a part of something that actually had some fans, and I was, I was, I, I kind of, I was happy to put my stuff on hold just to have that experience, you know, uh, and and what an experience it was! It was super fun. What is, was it like? Five years? Can you remember? Damien, Gabi, and I all moved to New York City within uh, around two thousand four, two thousand five, and at that point. It was like, okay, why are we in New York City? Like, like New York City is. People move here to try and accomplish something, you know. Um, right. Uh, so let's 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 do our best. I remember that the early shows is was when 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 Damien started trying to do little live shows, like these dinky little shows that we would we would do, um, and maybe it helped that. You know the New York City population is so big, and and you know if you if you live in the Bronx or Staten Island or you know, end of Long Island, you can still jump on a train to come to this weird MC Frontalot show. So we were able to get twenty or thirty people at some of our earliest shows. Yeah, so he started doing it then, and then, um, but he's you know always at night. He's he's plugging away on his computer, and he would tell us, he would tell us he had some sort of metric for determining. He's like sometimes he would say, you know, I think I have about this many fans I can't remember what he would say but I think at one point he said something like you know I think I have like 10,000 fans you know and I was just like shut up you know and I, I didn't I didn't believe him at all and then eventually he's like well maybe I could you know do some kind of tour and he he, he really didn't really know and I mean it's the classic DIY dream where he's, he didn't really know what he was doing he didn't know how to perform you know that's a whole different skill set as you know um, than writing and we booked that first tour and then Random chance of luck that um uh Gabi had been dating um Nagin. and uh she was getting into documentary movies, and she just got really fascinated with this whole um I think she was interested in the in the community side of it, but like this this thing it felt a little new, it felt a little different, it felt like a worthwhile topic for documentary. And Gabby almost messed it up for us because they actually broke up uh, slightly before our tour. <laughs> Whoops! And, I didn't uh, know that. You know, I, I, I felt like internally I was like, "Don't mess this up for us, man." But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they they uh, they they jumped in the van with us anyway and, and made a, a a video. And the fact that that was our very first tour uh, also I think made it kind of charming because. Um, you know, Sturgis had some experience and I had done a few tours. Like I, I, I had toured with this punk band for, uh, they weren't really punk, but I, I toured with this rock band and I toured with my own rock band and I had done some stuff, but you know, it, it, nobody ever had a booking agent or anything. So it was all a little here, a little there, like a, you know, a few times a season, it wasn't heavy touring or anything. So we were all really green. Yeah. And, um, and then the you know the fact that there was this little documentarian and that and that nobody knew if she was going to be, you know, just somebody's ex girlfriend with a you know with an iPhone or what what was going to happen. But she did a good job with it, and she she also um, man to her credit, not only did she she have good instincts, but she also reached out to people, uh, which is what you should do, especially if you're making a movie for the first time to get feedback and and, mm. and improve it and. Um, and she really committed to it, and so um I think that movie was was great, it was great for us,
0: yeah, and it was a um having some really big guests that she interviewed that kind of gave the genre credibility, like Prince Paul and Weird Al and Jello and like that was cool. I'd like how she pulled that off was I've always been like wow, you know what I mean? Yeah, and how she managed to get the interviews with them, yeah, Um, and and
1: connect, yeah, and that was cool because it it put it in it into (laughs) it put it into history, like like you know this is a this is one of the things that happens now and it connects to the things that happened before. Yeah, that was really cool. And she got, I mean, she got some really big, um, big interviews there. That was great. I loved your interview in the movie too.
0: Delete. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, what did I say? Yeah, if you sample Mario Brothers and rap about, (laughs) yeah, it was funny, man. Thank you. I I always, I always look back fondly at those years when I then I started touring with you guys shortly after because you guys, you know, my previous experience had been touring with like major label pop punk bands who had me as like their funny like kid rapper little brother, and they had a different attitude of entitlement or how the industry should be. And you guys had, you approached it more like, we're not doing this to be billionaires. We're doing this because we want to, because we're friends. And all of you, especially you and Sturgis, were really real with me about stuff that I did that I got away with in other contexts, like being lazy in certain ways. or You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, And it was good because you... I, learned, I think it, it made me a better tour mate in the long run, working with you guys, because you were all friends. You all respected each other. Damien has a way of doing things that's very like organized, and you learn to respect that. And Sturgis would always be like completely candid, like if Whitey Cracker and I were up too late, like that, nope, you can't be loud in the <laughs> hotel room. Go to the lobby. You know, stuff like that. How did you meet Sturgis? Was he, he, did he go to college, you guys, or did he audition? S- Sturgis was, I connected
1: to Sturgis in a weird way through the rock band that I started with my college buddy who then Mm. we broke up. Um, but we had lived in Western Massachusetts and my buddy ended up staying in Western Massachusetts and being a, a musician in that area. Um, and, um, so when, you know, when we were asking around for drummers, um, it was, yeah, it was one of those just sort of word of mouth things. Um, but he was, um, I lived. I lived in uh, uh, Amherst, Northampton area for a little while. And when I was there uh, earlier, there th- at the time there, there was always like one or two drummers who kind of played with everybody. And because it was you know a small town in western Massachusetts, it, it didn't really ever. Lee, it didn't really ever go anywhere, but everyone would know like, oh yeah, Lauren's like the guy. So like, if you can pay him a hundred bucks, he'll he'll be in your band, you know? And, and so there'd be different people. And Sturgis was sort of rising into that role right at that time where he was like the guy that everybody called to do drum stuff in that little community.
0: Oh. Um, and so he, did he move to New York or would he commute from there? He to never lived in New West. York.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And he continued to live in Western Mass that whole time. And, you know, and, and also he didn't, he came from a different world i mean he was he was he was not a computer guy and still is not a computer guy you know he, he, and and uh and and um he you know he's uh um he 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 works on cars and, and 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 uh and he he has a more of a, a rural um uh vibe to him you know where where uh he likes to be outdoors a lot you know he's outdoorsy he mm. likes to he likes to uh mountain bike and he's he's you know athletic so yeah it is was, it was totally different it's, but drumming is is something you, you know you can't be a pasty uncoordinated drummer like well i guess you can be pasty but you can't be uncoordinated and be a drummer <laughs> yeah you, you have to like have a physical work ethic and you, you have to be coordinated and and you have to um have a lot of the people who become drummers are usually have like a lot of physical energy um so you got to find somebody to to run the nerdcore band you know to to fit into the nerdcore band who has this heavy who has this not super brainy you know like you know i trip when i walk kind of you know approach
0: <laughs> right that's funny that's so he was kind of the outsider in a way, or he was the uh the person you had met you had all met the the last the latest you all knew each other from college yeah
1: so. i mean he was he was essentially a hired gun um yeah we spent so many years with them that he he became part of it but you know he he also um um he continued to do other things and there was a there was a, a moment um for both of us actually where we got better gigs. <laughs> you know like we kind of got called up to do something a little bit more high end with better pay and better lodging um but yeah. it just didn't last very long you know but we we both have our stories like he toured with this um singer songwriter guy called Martin Sexton who was mm. who was basically headlining folk festivals um and uh he had this super he had this voice like he just had an incredible voice, and he w- he was sort of a Van Morrisony kind of uh, guy. And um, so Sturgis was his drummer for one tour, and they they had a bus, and they had hotel rooms and everything. Um, and uh, you know, I connected with James Bourne for a tour in in uh, the UK. That was fun because he had he had a, a fan base that was a little different than the guy that Frontalot had. But I mean, he was a actual uh, had been a teen idol for a little while. And uh, yeah. in the UK, nobody really knows him in the US as far as I can tell. But um, in the UK, he's quite famous. And, um, and I also got to sub for uh, Jonathan Colton when he was opening for They Might Be Giants, which, which was just a, a short-term thing because um, his bass players couldn't do that particular run. But it was super fun for me because They Might Be Giants and, and a real tour bus. And Actually, we didn't have a real tour bus in that, but we did get ho- our own hotel rooms, which was really... uh.
0: That's amazing. Um, Yeah, because like those tours we did, we we would all sneak into the hotel room, be like six of us. You know what I mean? Like I remember the tour, the two thousand eight tour was so. The drives were so long. the, The the tour where we had the accident where you had you were back in New York, I think. But that tour was just like. Grueling, man. And so I could see from going from that to like a, a cushy gig, it might be like, uh, I don't know. If I don't know if this is at the top of my priority list, even though you love Damien.
1: Well uh, well, also I I mean, I really like touring, even though it's often very physically uncomfortable. It's hard to eat well and you you know, you yeah. cramp up because you're sitting so so much during the day and then you're you're jumping around on stage without adequate stretching. But the um but I I, I always <laughs> loved it because for me, it would put me in a very present state of mind, which was um emotionally very um freeing because i wasn't when I was on tour i wasn't worrying about um, i wasn't worrying about the future and I guess that's something I do a lot i mean i have you know your inner voices you're like you know why am I doing this this isn't um uh, you know i should be uh, should i go back to school i don't know uh, you know just all of the voices in your head or or even just like long term projects or obsessing over music or whatever you're making or relationships or i would just be you know kind of into the drive just hanging out I would I would do stuff. Yeah. I would bring stuff with me to do that was like really low priority, you know. That was because that because I was free to do whatever I wanted. I was on tour, like I would have a little computer project that was like a silly little side. Pro- I can't even remember what I would do, but I would I would learn like. Remember, I, I learned how to use this flowchart program once. I was just like, oh, I want to learn how to use that. The, uh, you know, it just it didn't matter. Um, yeah, it was all organized around those shows, and it kind of took all all the energy you had to do it and the rest of the time you are just hanging out um with good people and that's why like man touring with people you don't get along with is a, is is a real nightmare but if you if you're with your friends it's just a blast
0: yeah that's a great distinction if you like the people it's great and if it's um and the other thing is if you're playing to people i feel like the, the, even the hard shows were outweighed by there were some great shows at least the shows I was w- with you guys and i wonder brandon if it maybe you felt more of that freedom because being a player in a friend's band didn't mean all the marketing and branding was on your shoulders, you kind of could just roll with it no you you're know? right. I mean,
1: I think you and and Damien have a lot more to be anxious about. um you know there's there's financial implications to everything that happens there's there's you know. I've, I'm at this level. I want to get to this level. Like, there's there's striving. There's there's um, interviews. There, you're the face of the ba- Yeah. So the whole thing about being a sideman was fun. And you know, I guess looking back is one of the things that made it hard for me to get more. Um, you know, uh, uh, to get more attention for my own stuff was that I I I was I was pretty bad at that side of it. Like representing, like. Um uh, being an interesting person that that people want to talk about when you 're not around <laughs> you know I just made yeah. I just made stuff and wasn 't really sure how to share with anybody, so yeah, so I think that 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 relaxation that I experienced probably is not what Damien experienced at all because he 's He's all like, "Oh man, this today costs a thousand dollars, and uh, you know, all that stuff that goes to your brain. If you're like a small small business owner, or if if there's, I mean, we we read bad reviews, and he would take it really hard. He's like, they, they hated it, and mm-hmm. you know, but for me, it was yeah, the stakes were low, the rewards were were um, easy to come by. So yeah, being a side man, that's one of the perks. One of the downsides is though, as as the thing starts to take off, I I'm not, I don't have any. You know, uh, I, I don't get any of the like like uh, financial rewards for what happens and and so there's there's no um, longevity to it. And so you end up being like, it's five years later, and that was really fun and i don't have a career or or a or a job really you know so so you have that that you're like oh yeah cuz i was sitting there being in the present tense for 5 years so yeah you're right <laughs> and but then there were were there a few tours where you opened with your solo project right so that was one of my attempts to merge the two i yeah. i was like okay so i have i have a <laughs> all i have to do is ask and i can get an opening slot for this fan group but i was like this this group of fans doesn't want to listen to you know radiohead inspired layered textural rock music about my feelings you know which is what i tended to be making at that time like i love breakup songs you know And, and and so i was like man that would never work also I can't recreate that stuff by myself. I can't bring like a six person band, you know, into these little half hour opening slots. So I, I pivoted and I tried to embrace a a little bit more of my comedic side and be like guy with acoustic guitar who did occasionally funny songs and sing-alongs and stuff. Um, and, uh, and I had at the same time, I had another project with, um, a guy named Prince Gomovillas who's a playwright and we would perform in in uh at at this place called the Impact Theater in Berkeley um and so i i tried i took i took a shot at doing sort of like funny acoustic stuff you know like flight of the concord's kind of stuff for a while um but uh and i mean you know about you know you in front a lot have a lot of humor in your music and so you you know you know about um you know, there's there's a there's 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 a different side to that kind of writing where you know you want the jokes to land. and you know, if, figure out the timing of it and 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 how not to um uh, just how to be funny. it's it's hard it's a hard there's no obvious formula for how to be funny, right?
0: yeah. and with and we started this interview talking about topicality. I mean, with nerd culture, that stuff I feel like it constantly is changing. So you could talk about Star Wars or or like old Star Trek, but like new games and stuff—that's hard, you know. That's hard to not feel like you're pandering. So, did you do the stuff? So when you did that tour, were you doing the stuff from like Underhill Downs and how I and Should Confusion and everything, or was that was that new stuff that was more more silly? Well,
1: as I recall, I, I had like an eight or nine song set. And I would do like one or two of my um, songs that I thought were, were good enough that I could do just on acoustic guitar. Um, and then the rest of them were more just like f- f- fun. Man, I, I, I mean, I can't remember the exact lineup. But, but, but of course, I think I you know, once I started doing it, I would get more audience reaction. To something that was more interactive with the audience so yeah so there was sort of it sort of disincentivized me to do like a tender little song where people would just be quiet and and then I would do the next song whereas you know if I could do s- something that grosses people out or if I could do something that was like I did a Pogues cover and everyone would shout along on the chorus and and that was just more audience engagement so um yeah, i I think that the show confusion and Underhill Downs records ended up just feeling a little bit like for a different audience than the nerdcore mm-hmm. audience. And so I just kind of uh, uh i you know, it's, I ended up being like the warm-up act <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. it It worked in part because people knew that you play you played on those songs and that you were friends with Damien, so they're like, oh, this is tangential to something I like. like as a if you if he had nothing to do with, with the headliner maybe would have been even harder sell do you think
1: sure sure yeah, presumably and i i had my tie on you know when when i would perform um you know i, I never know i guess i never know in the in a front of lot audience how many people there are aware of the band or even pay attention <laughs> to the band um but uh presumably that gave me at least the um, a little bit of legitimacy to be there as opposed to like you're saying, when you did those rock, those punk rock shows, I mean, certain number of the audience must've been like, who's this guy? Why, yeah. why is he here?
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Especially then like 2005, 2004, where it was not, common for hip hop and other genres to kind of cross pollinate like that, right? So it was an interesting time, man. Um, do you okay, so you what was the last tour you did with them? And and Gabi stopped touring before you did, right? He he stopped.
1: Yeah, I yeah. if I recall correctly, Gabi just did a few tours with us. And so everyone's having a different internal experience. Like I'm blissed out on this like present tense, low anxiety, you know, tour experience. Uh, yeah, and Gabi is not enjoying it at all. Like Gabi, Gabi is a really light sleeper, so he's probably sleep deprived the whole time. He doesn't party. So like he, he he's just like waiting to get back to the hotel room to unsuccessfully go back to sleep every night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Yeah, it's hard. And then at some point he realized, wait a minute, my my dream, my journey is being interrupted by the MC front lot experience and he reclaimed his own path. Um, and I kind of hung on a little longer cause it was fun. I was having a good time. The, the thing that changed was I moved out of New York in mm-hmm. 2009. So wh- when I left New York, um, then it was, it was, I mean, I was only two hours away. I moved to New Haven, but the, uh, that was the beginning of a little more distance from from the project, it was a little more effort to come in and rehearse for something. I think I spent th- another three or four years mostly doing um, the lucrative like one-off things where you go to like packs or or uh, a convention like playing in Def Con at, in Las Vegas every year. I did that for many years. That was really fun. I think that's when Weezer's bass player started getting more involved in in playing the bass parts for more steady gigs or more local
0: gigs. How did you you and your wife meet? And if there's anything you don't want to talk about, we don't have to. No,
1: this is a great story. I I assume I've told you this story before, but you may have forgotten. Uh, We met on an airplane and I was um, flying out to Minnesota where I grew up to go to the wedding of uh, an old um, family friend. And I was wearing my tux because I didn't have a garment bag, so I was just like, oh, I'll just wear this on the airplane. Yeah. So I was just a guy in a tux, um, and I was watching a um, I was watching a, a movie about Kurt Cobain or something like that. So I was a guy in a tux watching a movie about Kurt Cobain on an airplane to Minnesota, and she was next to me, reading some New Yorker article about. and she was flying to Montana to meet with her dad for some kind of vacation thing, and um, the last hour of the flight, we struck up a conversation because I was like peeking at her. I said, "Oh, I read that New Yorker article. It's really interesting," and we we just started chatting, and um, and you know the usual small talk sort of turned into you know what do you what do you do, and she told me that she was uh, a scientist, and I started asking her um, about her field. And I realized I knew nothing. Like I knew almost nothing about what she, what she knew about, which sometimes is kind of scary. Cause you feel like you're, you kind of want to, Oh yeah, like this, or like I read this, but it's just like, right? what is a protein? You know, like I, I, I just had no idea, but she, um, it turns out that she was kind of frustrated because, she had a lot of friends and especially family who were a little intimidated and never asked her questions about her work because they didn't like feeling dumb. And I was, I just, I just launched right in there. I was like, all right, this might be a dumb question, but blah, blah, And, and, and so we had this really great conversation and she was kind of like, she pulled out napkins and she was like drawing on napkins and everything. And then all of a sudden, yeah. all of a sudden the plane was empty and everyone else had gotten off and we we're like, oh, oh, wow. oh, we're here. So, okay, bye. And then we, and then, then, then that was it. It was over. And so then I went to this wedding and I was with my mom at the wedding. She was my date and uh, and it's it's weird to go to a wedding like this love and love and lovey love love, love. Uh, but but I'm just sitting there you know with my mom drinking wine and I just was like oh that girl on the airplane she was so cool. Yeah. I don't even know I mean I remember her name. And I know I know where she's a grad student but I, that would be stalkery right to like hunt her down like what what would I do like try to find her mail her departmental mailbox like I don't even know how to find her again so I just figured it was a it was a single serving encounter and then on the way home we were on the exact same flight and we met waiting for the airplane on the way back home oh my gosh and that wow yeah and so that time because I had kind of like been thinking about her so then i was a little more like you have to give me your email but i was just i was like i don't want to lose track of
0: you yeah um, that's amazing so wait so she was why was she flying to minnesota if she was going to montana there she was li- like a layover yeah, it, was a, it was a
1: hub it was a layover yeah because there's that's no so random direct, there was no direct flight to whatever eastern montana from new york or something
0: wait, so that was what year that would have been 2008 that was the same year of the car crash.
1: You know, all my musician friends were just cut off from their plans, um, and certainly the the working musicians, like like uh, you know, like Sturgis or or Frontot's current drummer, um, or any anybody who's like the whole sideman experience, like nobody has any money saved. Like they they just, they're just kind of scrambling to hustle up gigs all the time. Um, And then when you don't have gigs, you usually do some sort of low wage job, like work in a restaurant. So (laughs) you're like, oh, I can't tour. I better, oh, I can't work in a restaurant. Like, it's just (laughs) like, so yeah. um, um, A lot of people uh, just were really financially, um, crushed by by um not having that um i was already had already turned into sort of a homemaker like like the beginning of the pandemic we had a baby that i was taking care of while my wife was working and i was the i was the stay-at-home dad for several months Mm. so you know that it didn't change our it did not change our trajectory at all actually on that on that regard i was going to stay home and take care of the kid until i could go to until she could go to school but
0: Yeah. So you, so that's interesting. Um, so I asked you like a year ago or something, I was listening to your music. I was like, Brandon, do you think you'll make another record? And you said something interesting. You said you didn't know if you would, you might not. Has that changed during this time? Do you feel like you want to make music again or? I have not. I have not felt like I want to make
1: music again. Um, and honestly, um, I mean, I think I'll write. I'll write some little songs, you know, on, on acoustic guitar. Sure, no problem. Um, and I also, well, I will. I will be. I, I've connected with a, an old, um, an old friend, a very old friend here, um, and so we're going to start playing music together. But I don't know if I'll make an album again, and the the reason is that um, the way that I was able to make albums required. A, a, a level of commitment and slight insanity that I don't think is possible in my family life. <laughs> and I, you know, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to yeah. lay that on anybody. You know, I don't want to lay that on them. It's like, you won't let me make a record, but, it, but it, it, I, it's just like, you know, staying up all night or like the, I, I can't quite get the, uh, can't quite get the euphoria I, and the delusion of grandeur I want if I'm just like oh I get to work on this between 10 and 11 every more you know wh- every day every weekday you know like that yeah. that's i mean and i think if i had more if i needed it more then i would just find a way to make that work it's like well this is the mm-hmm. only way i can do it so i'm going to make this work but instead i'm kind of like
0: man i just don't want to make music that way so mm-hmm. i just haven't been is that liberating to to not have that the onus of that whole Old way of doing things? No, I think it's sad. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> but um, but you know, it, it, it's a it's that kind of creative output was was uh, w- was um, part of a life. The, it was, was was hand in hand with a kind of lifestyle. So, I, I if I right. if I return to music, it has to it has to work within my you know my middle aged lifestyle somehow.
0: Yeah, and it has to feel new in a way, right? I like feel like it's interesting and and when you I've noticed that too, Brandon, like but pre-family music was definitely the center of my life, right? Everything I did was what how can this be a song? How can I promote it? Now it's like something I do for escape and fun. And it's gonna be interesting when we're planning the tour this fall, how that feels being away from everyone. And um, you know, like whether that will feel like escape or like being in an old pattern or if that will feel like a distraction like we talked about from being with my family which is like now the center of my world and so i feel that shift too and i don't feel the same drive to make a rec spend a year making a record but if it's fun i'll do it so it's i feel liberated realizing that which is why i wanted to bring that up yeah it's
1: gonna it's gonna have layers to it i mean there's definitely the escapism is still there like and you know, i i am so excited to see what people have done during the pandemic cuz cuz there's a lot of people who who don't have tons of responsibilities who are stuck at home with only their creativity and i think that there's going to yeah. be this dump of finished work over the next 2 years It's going to be really fun to sift through to see what everybody else did but yeah. but um you know those of us with 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 kids we're just sort of uh you know uh figured out how to how, how to get through the the world of no babysitters um yeah there's layer there's gonna be layers to that um and and yeah everybody everybody's gonna have to figure that out i mean i i think that that also could be really cool that you are like there's a purity for, for instance here, here's here's one thing i um so I've lived in a lot of places and 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 you you've moved around too and there's an old joke that um In LA people are, uh, in San Francisco, people are smart and LA people are ambitious and in New York people are both, which is obviously a a, a New York centric, (laughs) uh, you know, uh, superiority thing. But um, one of the things that I, that there's truth in that for me is, is that in, in the Northwest, I meet all these people who have a creative output that they're hugely committed to and they're not ambitious about. And it's like, it's, it's, it's for personal enrichment. It's not, it's not something that they want to make a career out of exactly. I mean, I'm, they might have a little bit of dream. Oh, that would be great if I, you know, could do this for a living, but they're, they're not really like orienting themselves in that way. And and sometimes it means it's a little amateurish, but sometimes it means it has this purity to it because it's it's non mm-hmm. it's non commercial. It's not really adapting to a, an audience or a potential audience. It's just like why'd you do this? Because I like doing this. You're like, and that's end of story. You know, it's it, and it's not. Yeah. It's not like oh, we have to cut that song because this the crowd is not feeling it. Like, there's no practicality to it. It's it it's yeah. just people expressing themselves. And then in 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 New York or LA, sometimes. You can be like um, people might look at you. You like you did this without any kind of ambition. Like what is wrong with you? Like they, they're, they're like, why are you here? Like aren't you trying to yeah. make it or something? So so yeah. So there's 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 nice levels to that. So I think maybe later in life. Those of us who got maybe went a little bit too deep down the rabbit hole with this like, you know, I want to be like, I don't know how you feel. This is a good question for you. I don't know how you feel about this, but we used to talk on tour and you wanted Nerdcore to be like huge and you wanted your creativity to reach so many people. You were so ambitious. You're like, I just, you know, I just love this music so much. And I I want it to take, I want it to be like the dominant force in the universe, you know? And and I would kind of laugh. I'd be like, I don't, I don't know that this music is compatible with true mainstream global uh you know uh needs for entertainment but yeah you know i think as young people we that seems so exciting to be to be a rock star or to or to have just any kind of enterprise and have it pick up steam and have it have a following and and grow but now that you can have this more kind of thing like you know what is it like to have like that that group that you play jazz with on Sundays or something, you know, like I don't know, it, it's there's different motivations.
0: I think in some ways, though, how hip hop and nerd culture have come together have become a defining thing. It's just been by younger people or savvy people in a different way. It's not called nerdcore, but it has those elements that were there in the genesis, right, of the fusion of it. Yeah, and and the, um, and the
1: reason I hitched to the the front a lot thing and kind of neglected my own thing was was because i really value the way that music that the community forms around music. And so so i i have i have less of this sort of like, you know, Ayn Rand, you know, you know, me against the world, like genius artist thing. It's more it's more about these little temporary communities that that form around something nebulous and and, and and bring people together and have their little dramas and then and then and then it kind of fades away and 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 that's that's just beautiful to me so the fact that there was the fact that there was some relevance to some people and you know people get their tattoos of of, of our stuff on them or people would talk about it just being meaningful you know to to somebody that was great and and it and it's magical and um it doesn't matter really how, how big it is. In fact, the bigger it is, usually the less meaningful it is. I mean, there's, there's a, there's, you know, there, there's yeah. that, there's that sweet spot where something is getting bigger, but is still special and small and is small enough to be a community. Um, and, um, yeah, so, so yeah. And, and in fact, I mean, some of that was that I, 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 I don't want to be a part of Amazon.com, a global, you know, blah, blah. Like I want to be a part of a small scene. So I, I actually didn't want Nerdcore to get too big because the, the the, things that I valued were already happening. So I was more worried worried yeah. about like, do you remember that Woodstock, was it the 20th or the 30th, is some anniversary Woodstock show that they tried to do and water was like $5 a bottle and everyone started- Yeah, Woodstock 99. Yeah, riding and stuff. It, yeah. it was like,
0: yeah, man, you don't want to. You don't want to go that, that way with it. <laughs> yeah. What, where do you think, like, I'm impressed that it's continued and that people still come to see us and that it's survived, Nerdcore. Did you expect that, that, like, now 15 years after this, people would still pay to come see it? I don't know. I, I mean, I didn't, really, I didn't really expect anything,
1: but I do know yeah. that n- nerds are, are more nostalgic then, so, so hipsters tend to stop liking things when too many other people like them also. It doesn't happen with nerds. Like nerds, and, and, and in in fact, one of the, maybe one of the flaws of a lot of nerds is that they're, they're resistant to new stuff sometimes because they're so attached to the stuff they liked when they were young. So I think that's, that's just a random chance that, that the world we move in is full of extremely nostalgic people who are extremely loyal so i think yeah, it's going to be right. fine but if we had been in like you know i don't know like some some high fashion international jet set thing they would have dropped us like yesterday's garbage you know like the minute we were it wasn't yeah, cool yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> damien said something to me in columbus on when we did one of our tours with Schaefer, Megaran and me and we were amazed at how many people came that we got on the first show and Damien said, I said, Why is this? And we were packing a merch. He's like, Because it was never cool, it never had the chance to be uncool. Yeah. Which is kind that's, of what you that's said. That's nice. Yeah,
1: I used to do a similar thing, which was I would do Wikipedia songs, and I I would like find some Wikipedia page I thought was really interesting. I was like, I am going to turn this into a song. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I I never told you this, but I tried to that's tight. I tried to create an event at Joe's Pub. I didn't get very far because I didn't I did, I couldn't reach the the main people who had the power to make something happen. But I pitched an event that was all about songs about literature. And it was going to be like, That's it was be like, and MC Lars is going to be there, you know, with his, his Moby Dick references and his Edgar Allan Poe and, uh, and, uh, and, and, um, the magnetic fields should, should do some stuff. And I, I just, I just yeah. thought of, there's, um, um, you know, at the time I think, uh, I don't know, I had a list, I, I, I had a list of like cool indie rock bands who had songs about, about books, um. We should we should get Sting to
0: show up and do Moon Over Bourbon Street. It'll all be songs about books. But the story I want to tell now is that my kid is happy and has someone has structure, and that's more powerful than any song could be. And it's funny how the dad brain upgrades, changes what what is creatively fulfilling, and me yeah. seeing him like crawl yeah. around and. You know what I mean? You, you probably relate to that. And that's actually freeing because then it doesn't become sad that, oh, I don't have time to do this full time. It becomes, it gives me perspective. And I love that. You know, maybe me relate to that.
1: And it's so, I mean, it's so fun to, to, to role model for young children, you know, how to be creative and expressive and, and have ideas. I, my my four year old has this term, I guess she picked up from me, you know, and it, um, yeah, I'll come in and I'll say, what are you doing?
0: She's like, it's one of my projects. <laughs> That's cool. I know you have a great website and I know people listening will want to check on it. Um, let's shout out where people can like, follow your projects as they come out in the future.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I, I still uh, have uh, www.brandonpatton.com, and uh, there are some old music links up there. I do these little medical games for a company called Nerdcore Medical. We actually put the word Nerdcore into our, our business there, so um, you can check out uh, some of those things. Although a lot of them are sold out right now, but they'll they'll be back. Basically, the albums I feel proudest of that have that have that have that continued to to be like I'm 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 not ashamed of that were were those sort of indie rock. Moody records I made called Should Confusion and Underhill Downs. And those are the ones that I I put a lot of um, obsessive, you know, hard work into. And those are, the, those, are, those are the two records I still feel really good about from an artistic point of view. And then if, if you're interested in any of the sort of funny or silly stuff, there's uh, an album called How I Allegedly Bit a Man in Gloucestershire, which is based on a, a true story of when I was drunk at a rock concert. And whenever we're in the same location, like if you tour through Seattle, uh, well, actually, I'm thinking if you tour to Seattle, you probably want to have your family with you. But at some point, your kid and my youngest will be very close in age, so they, they can hang out together. And they, can, they can trade VR memes with each other in the future.
0: They have the same frame of reference for how the world was disrupted and reunited and how friendship is great. <laughs> hey, I'm gonna, I want to end. I like to end with jams, and I want to end with caught off guard, if you don't mind, sure. because I love that jam. So let's go out with that. Um, Brandon, this has been tight. I appreciate you making time. Thanks that's joyful okay here we go here we go
2: Ça va Running me through tests, and I doubt you would like it if the tables turned. We've caught sight of some possible happiness. You're not the only one who could get.
0: incredible song incredible man thank you Brandon really great talking to you and uh, keep in touch at MC Lars on Twitter at MC underscore Lars on Instagram if you haven't heard the 100 plus old episodes they're on SoundCloud they're on Stitcher they're on Apple Podcasts they're on Spotify so go back and listen if you miss me and uh, I'll be back so keep subscribe to this RSS feed and uh, we got more flavor coming soon I love you all thank you so much peace